Hello and welcome once again to the Exchange's Discourse podcast after our summer break. I'm your host, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. Now, we are a companion podcast to the Interdisciplinary Exchanges Journal, which, since 2013, has been published by the Institute of Advanced Study at the University of Warwick, and for which I am the Editor-in-Chief. Now, in each episode of this podcast, we quite often are talking to authors who have published with their journal, and that's certainly what today's episode's about. We're going to be talking to one of the authors about their research, about their academic publication experience, and particularly about their advice for new authors in keeping with the focus of the journal on early career researchers. Other episodes, of course, sometimes focus in on developments of the journal or scholarly communication in general, or of course, offering advice for potential contributors. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to be talking to one of the first of hopefully a number of authors who published in our recent Lonely Nerds Culture special issue. So, let's start the conversation. Today, I'm joined by Natalia Rumek. Natalia, it is fantastic to have you here today. You are our first podcast guest from the special issue. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to take part in this issue. My name is Natalia, Natalia Rumak. I'm from Moscow, uh, Russia. I work in the uh, Moscow State University mm. and our department, or well, uh, our faculty is called Institute of Asian and African Studies. It uh, has quite a long history, about, well, uh, six, 65 years I think wow. and we well we are teaching and we are researching uh, different well Asian and African mm. languages including uh, quite rare and as for me I teach Japanese and of course I do some research concerning uh, the Japanese language my PhD thesis was uh, about onomatopoetic words Ooh, yes. <laughs> quite sure how, how to <laughs> in English. Well, I, I, I was going to say onomatopoeic. <laughs> I would say. So I think. Personally, I thought your pronunciation was absolutely fantastic there, Natalia. So. <laughs> Thank, well, you see, it's always the problem when you mostly read or write those <laughs> words, and then when you start speaking, you understand you don't know how to pronounce them. <laughs> the first time I had to talk about Foucault um, on my PhD, and I, I referred to Foucault, and my supervisor went, who are you talking about? I went, oh, I've only ever read his name. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh. <laughs> Especially when, by the way, by the way, speaking about names, exactly. Yeah. In my PhD thesis, I had a name of some Scandinavian uh, mm. researcher, and I used the Japanese transcription of his name. Mm. And uh, my well, one of my superiors. Uh, said that he doubted it was read that way. Actually, mm. in Japanese, it was like a score up. Mm. And I tried to find it out somehow, and I connected my other uh, acquaintances who knew Scandinavian languages, Norwegian or Sweden or whatnot, or Dutch it was maybe. Yeah. So, well, we had a version. We decided it was not score up, but Shoyrup. <laughs> but Actually, I'm not sure up to this day that it is right. So you know that actually this really is a problem. So uh, I was and I am studying yeah. the sound symbolism. And uh, mostly I am interested, well, my uh, thesis was uh, about translating these words mm. to Russian because they are 
well i think it's the same in english and in european languages you mostly we mostly have uh, those uh, words that uh, imitate sounds but mm. we don't have much uh, of uh, those that imitate emotions or maybe uh, what some tactile senses uh, you know or maybe even movements and mm. so on so it's really the problem and uh, most of students uh, are usually interested in those words and they also keep asking how we translate it so it was quite an interesting topic and then well i shifted somehow to the meaning the, uh, the structure of meaning uh, some semantics uh, and now well i'm actually i'm more of a well practical worker so mm -hmm. i translate i teach i do written and oral translation but uh, anyway when we work well i think you know this yourself when we work we still notice some interesting things and we think then uh, oh why not make an article about this <laughs> so it's somehow like that and of course well when you work with translation you find some like cross-cultural issues mm. That uh, it's not only words, it's not just pure linguistics, but there are some problems, uh, some, well, maybe associations that you just don't have in your culture, you don't have in your language. It is uh, true, I think, for any language, uh, whether they are, uh, well, whether it is English or maybe some Slavic languages. And of course, this is even more true for Asian language. Uh, language because uh, culture is so different mm. <laughs> so i think that was the issue why i chose this topic and why i decided to try to participate in exchange well, well it was great having you having you in it and obviously that was going to be my very next question was sort of talking about your articles specifically oh, so. uh, and i'm going to now mispronounce your title so that i can make my apologies in advance here you know, yours was uh, Sherlock and Sharoku, nerdy detectives in the West and in the East. Now, obviously, Sherlock Holmes, you know, it's a, a good topic, but this whole Japanese conception of it was totally new to me. So it was really, really interesting. So just tell me, you know, or to, or tell our listeners a little bit more about the article. Well, again, it's uh, an interesting thing, I think. Well, I've always been a fan, a great fan of English literature, of detective mm. stories, of Sherlock Holmes, of course. And when uh, this uh, BBC TV series, uh, mm. television series uh, appeared, it was uh, quite a pleasure to see all these well, games, I'd mm. say, all this uh, adaptation when you have the same character but you change it upside down and inside out and this is still the same character. Mm. And then I uh, somehow found, I think somebody told me that uh, they had another Sherlock, this Miss Saroku, mm. <laughs> Japanese transcription and Japanese pronunciation is very... <laughs> thank, thank you, your pronunciation there far superior to mine. <laughs> so, well, you see, you have uh, long vowels, so it's Saroku <laughs> and uh, then long... Um, uh, consonants and so on so uh, this is miss sherlock uh, so mm. it's a woman and when i was watching the series well it's quite interesting and it's funny and whatnot and i just couldn't help having this impression that it somehow mimics the british sherlock mm. so it wasn't actually a conan Doyle stories that it was interpreting but it was somehow the bbc television series mm. it was well 
adapting, it was interpreting. And yes, I started to think, so why it was possible and why all these changes are not only possible, but they are interesting. And we have different Sherlock's and all of them are still perceived as Sherlock's, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes's. <laughs> And then right at the moment I got this uh, invitation to participate in the nerd project, uh, Lonely Nerds, and I thought that it was quite the thing, so I decided to somehow explore these intercultural things and, uh, well, I don't know, somewhere deep in mm. one culture mm. and then uh, in this deepness right into the next culture and compare them somehow. So yes, this was really a very interesting project. Uh, I'm very grateful that, I don't know, to some gods maybe, that uh, <laughs> gave this to me right uh, at the right moment. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. I was going to say, when you just said there about Sherlock Holmes, is, you know, is there a collective noun for Sherlock Holmes in the multiple? <laughs> yes, that's a very interesting idea. That can be another exploration. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting point, uh, Natalia, because I was going to say, you know, obviously, you know, the issue of exchanges is out. So are you working on any other articles then at the moment you know, related to this or indeed related to the rest of your work? Not exactly articles. I'm preparing some uh, well speeches, conferences, because we are having two or three, maybe even four conferences in autumn. Oh, wow. uh, and well, yes, you know, <laughs> no matter how practical we are, we still have to do the research and to mm. participate in all these uh, conferences and uh, whatnot. Well, it's interesting and of course it's a good experience and you can learn a lot from other scholars and there are things both in linguistics and translating and even in teaching of course mm. uh, so and these speeches they well they may become articles so i've done one uh, i think well, some time ago, I made it ready and now I'm preparing to do another one, but it's quite a difficult topic, so I'm just uh, collecting material. It's about, well, again, it's semantics and uh, it is about, well, um, difference of meaning in some polysemic words, uh, well, you know, there are words mostly all words have different meanings and some of them have the contrary meaning in one in the same word so in english tradition as i've seen they are called autonyms oh yes uh, yeah. uh, and uh, there is another term anantosemic anantosemia yes so uh, it's uh, really a very interesting topic and i just started researching it and i think i'll try to make an mm. article on the japanese word japanese verb Mm. It is the verb that uh, gives, uh, expresses, well, relationship between people. So it shows that somebody gives another person or does something for another person. And uh, these verbs, well, including this career verb, they are often seen as a benefactory verb. So you are doing something or somebody is doing something that is good for you. But then I found out, well, found out <laughs> the wrong word, but still there are examples of the same mm. verb used in quite the contrary meaning. And sometimes it's ironical, to, oh, thank you, how well you've hit me. 
like this. So where you add intonation, yes, you add mm. some context, and uh, it is clear that the meaning goes vice versa. But uh, there are examples when there is no irony, and still the verb loses this benefactoring uh, moment, and it turns out it means uh, right the contrary. It is something that is not good for you. And more than that, well, I actually I don't know how well you are acquainted uh, with Japanese language. Uh, not so, very well at all. <laughs> so there are uh, some, well, it's not the only verb, but there are some verbs that show, how will I put it, the um, vector. Mm. So if it is I am doing something for you, or if it is you are doing something for me, like, uh, will you please read this for me? Will you please go there for me? So you have uh, a similar uh, thing in English, but in uh, Japanese, these are special words, special verbs that form this construction. And then again, we find out that uh, these uh, verbs that are supposed to show this uh, you from me or me from you direction uh, suddenly change the direction. And so this courier verb, which was supposed to mean you are doing something mm. very nice for me, it turns into me doing something not very well for you, not very nice for you. Mm. Mm. Uh, and it's really very interesting and I'd like to dig into this thing and find out if it is connected maybe with the epoch, because I find uh, such examples in, the, in some little fantasy texts, but which are putting the, um, the action uh, into mm -hmm. some middle, uh, lost the word. <laughs> Okay, some ancient times. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, follow, I follow you meaning there, Natalia. So maybe this is connected with the epoch of uh, mm. when you use this verb. And uh, so, yes, well, it's an interesting topic and I'd like to see into it somehow. That sounds really, really interesting, Natalia. So yes, my best wishes for you there and research <laughs> that. Thank you, thank you. I was going to say, as I've mentioned to various people on the podcast, I'm learning Welsh at the moment. Uh, in it's, it's a language that very few people seem to speak. It doesn't have an everyday use, but it's fascinating just from what you've been saying there. I can, oh yes, I kind of recognise some of the constructions and some of the strange cultural biases that you can witness within it as you're learning a language that's not your own. So. All, all very interesting stuff. Now, obviously, one of the things I always ask folks who come on this, you know, we are, we're a journal and, and personally, I'm always interested in people's publication experiences, good and bad. Um, I always think there's, there's something to be learned from as much from a bad experience as a good experience with publishing. So have you had any horror stories with your own publication? Well, you see, well, as I've said, I have to participate in different conferences and we usually have these uh, proceedings uh, published, mm. but these are often not a problem at all. Mm. So uh, they may be even not edited. So you mm. just uh, give the text of your speech and yeah. it is published as it is. But of course, we also have, I mean, in Russia, we also have uh, scientific journals. Uh, mm. And there is a rating of them, and there is a special committee which approves them. And uh, of course, it's preferable to uh, have an article published in uh, one of such journals. And of course, they have uh, these uh, peer reviews, uh, double blind, and uh, whatnot. And I also I can't see this is a uh, well. I mean, 
this is always a terrible experience because <laughs> every time uh, you try to publish an article, of course, you get it back with different comments and uh, with uh, different, well, mm, you have to uh, revise mm. it, you have to rewrite it somehow. And every time, though, this is not my first time, well, this was my first time to uh, uh, for publishing in English in mm. Apple, mm. actually. So, again, I'm so thankful to you for this opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, anytime I get this back and I get my uh, text in red and all those mm -hmm. comments, uh, the first thing I think, oh, oh no, I'm not a scientist at all, I'm going to quit this, I will go translating, <laughs> please stop it now. But, well, I once, um, I attended uh, some uh, seminars about uh, publishing, about choosing a journal, about working with uh, the revisions, and they gave us uh, a very simple, I think, but a very, very useful thought. Nobody wants uh, to somehow humiliate you. Mm. This is not for that. Uh, these people intend to make it better. Mm. So I decided one thing uh, about uh, all these um, procedures. I have to put it aside for one, uh, two, maybe a few days. How do you put it? Sleep on it. Mm. And then start just uh, read it with small, small, small portions without thinking that it's bad, that it is red, mm. that it must be changed at all. But uh, viewing every uh, single comment at a time, maybe. So, at the very beginning, it is really terrible. I think, well, I don't think it's just me. I think uh, almost all of us um, don't like critics. It's a common complaint I've heard. <laughs> I think so. So, uh, I have to what, uh, keep a stiff upper lip, right? <laughs> uh, somehow. Uh, think uh, about making things better mm. and then yes uh, work on it uh, like one step at a time so i think this is my most terrible most horror <laughs> stories about publishing but well it happens every time it's really interesting because of course you know with exchanges we have a lot of early career researchers who for often it is their first article and Quite often, some of them have had, you know, a very successful, you know, they've been an undergraduate very successfully, they've had high-flying scores, they've gone through their PhD, and this is their first experience of being knocked back, of having someone say, well, actually, this isn't good enough. Yes. And I yes. think for, for folks like that, it can be a bigger shock than for oh, people like myself, who are used to people going, oh, that's terribly spelled, Gareth. Oh, how? No, 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 no. Rerock. Then my supervisor famously, after I'd spent three months working on my theory chapter of my thesis, turned to me and said, it's not good enough. I've re no, rewrite all these bits. And so, I've done nothing else for three months. I had that earlier experience of no, 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 rewrite, 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 you know, something that I thought was actually quite good. We've all been there. <laughs> and I think this is the, uh, a very important point for uh, early, uh, early researchers. Because when you uh, talk with your colleagues, when you make a speech at the conference, whatnot, you uh, are uh, almost always praised for it. Nobody uh, gives you any feedback, any real feedback. And that's a problem, actually. But when it is a review and you don't know the reviewer, and he, well, he feels free 
to tell you all well all the things that are not really good mm. that you have uh, to correct and it should be seen as a way for improvement yeah this i think that's very Absolutely. very very important so at one point i think oh i have to rewrite it for the third time i don't know why this they are still keeping me maybe my well i don't i know that my english uh, is not perfect english it is not my native language and of course uh, i have uh, i do many i make many mistakes and all that and oh i i'm keeping all the team uh, back Mali, <laughs> i i'd say english is my native language and mine has so many mistakes. I actually find folks uh, who write where English isn't their first language are grammatically better than native speakers because they agonise over the structure and the grammar and the rules far more than those of us who learn English and children and then sloppily apply it in our professional writing. So um. yes, the, the, this is also the case and it also happens, of course, the same thing with Russian. <laughs> and uh, we just can't compare. There are people who speak and write better, there are people who speak and write worse, no matter if it is their native language or second language uh, or not. Uh, that's, the, that's the next problem. But still, yes, that's the thing to be kept in mind. I think it is always, there is always way for improvement and it is always designed for you to improve, to improve your work, to improve. I always find that when I come back to something I've written many months later, even after it's been published, then I spot all the errors and all of the clumsy phrasing that, oh, it was fine to be published, but I'm still, oh, why did I say it like that? And that's where I try and take that into my next piece of writing to try and learn from my own errors that I can still spot within it. Yes, yes, fully agree with you. <laughs> they, they always say never never read anything you've written after you've published it because you'll always be annoyed by something within it. <laughs> exactly, and that's, uh, again, that's uh, the big problem with me because I've been doing a lot of fictional translating. Uh, mm, mm. So this is terrible. This is really terrible because they have uh, deadlines. Mm. have to meet the deadline and so you read and rewrite and you correct but still the text and the original text is in your head and you just can't step away from it yeah so you always need time i don't know two three months to mm. just forget about it and only then to have it back to reread it and to correct it. So, well, I think it's the same thing with all the texts, no matter fictional or, or what. It's really interesting as you know, you're talking about sort of conference presentations and the, you know, the scripts and the, the, for those, because I find when I read conference presentations, I have a nice, lively written style. And when I try to adapt that to a formal publication, it just dries up. It becomes such unpalatable text. So that, for me, that's always the thing I struggle with the most is, you know, live talking fantastic it's, it's bouncy it's exciting I, I have the right beats on it now to turn this into something as a written piece of prose oh it's now deathly dull to read it was one of those criticisms my supervisor always made of all my writers gareth you just do not emphasize the exciting bits enough so i always say to uh, writers when they're writing for the first time make sure the exciting bits are in there and they are flagged and people are directed to them because many of us hide them away in our writing because they're exciting to us 
but they're not as obvious to everybody else. Yes, yes, yes. That's also a problem because during the conference, you see people before you mm. and you are interacting with them and you can give nice examples, funny examples. You can mm. make them laugh. Or you can make them uh, listen to you more attentively. But when you uh, put this into some uh, academic, I don't know, rims, mm. uh, you have to, yes, yeah, somehow constrain you <laughs> yourself. Well, I'll tell you, my last question is something we've kind of already touched on because, you know, we're talking about the whole writing process here. But for those people who are coming to write, say, for exchanges or other journals for the very first time, what's that one piece of advice you'd give them? Well, first of all, of course, it is uh, to see all the, well, necessary requirements. So, of course, you have your material and you know how to present it. And yes, all those examples and interesting bits and whatnot. But then uh, every journal, well, there are standards, of course, mm. but there are different standards. And uh, to me, it looks like every journal has uh, its own standards, even when they are put like, well, Harvard publishing standards or what Cambridge publishing standards, still they differ. And of course, this is one of the main things when you put your text when you somehow adapt mm. uh, your text for publishing and the second thing uh, which i've already mentioned there is always way for improvement and don't you think that somebody is trying to well to kick you out of mm. things mm. so mm. this is only to make things better so you have to listen to all the advice you have. You may always ask for help. And mm. again, thank you very much. And uh, thank Filippo who helped me so much. And he answered my perhaps very silly questions about <laughs> <laughs> some things. Concerning there, are no, there, there are no such thing as silly questions in publishing, I firmly believe. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so this is the thing uh, that one should keep in mind. There are no silly questions <laughs> and uh, no one perhaps knows everything and you always can ask for help and there are always people who are ready to help you so this is all it is uh, supposed to be for the journal and it is supposed to be for you also mm. well thank you Natalia the wise words I can absolutely agree with all of those thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you again and I think I've got the word it was medieval Medieval, ah, of course. <laughs> Sorry again. No, no worries. So, uh, for listeners who got all the way to the end, I will not be splicing that into the earlier part of the podcast. You'll have to have listened right to this point. Thank, Thank you, Natalia. You. And my thanks for my guest for coming in to talk with us. And in our next episode, once again, we've got another of our authors who's published in the recent Lonely Nerd special issue. So, there's that to look forward to as well. For now, though, I am Dr. Gareth J. Johnson, and I've been your host for this Exchanges Discourse podcast. Now, if you wanted to find out more about the journal, there's a link in the episode description. Or you can find us easily by searching for Exchanges Journal Warwick. If you'd like to get in touch with a question about the podcast, or to discuss a potential submission, or indeed anything else, you can always reach me via exchangesjournal at warwick.ac.uk, or via Twitter as Exchanges IAS. Thank you for listening, and please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to catch every new episode.